Hello and welcome to a special episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. As regular listeners will know, the usual routine is that I speak to a maker or designer about a material or technique they're intrinsically involved with and have spent their careers honing to discover how it changed their lives. However, every once in a while, I allow myself to break out of that self-imposed format and chat to someone who has an overview of the worlds of art, design, craft and architecture. Today, my guest is the critic, broadcaster and curator, Corin Julius. Now, I think it's safe to say that Corin comes from contemporary design royalty. Her family founded the genuinely pioneering furniture manufacturer, Hilly, the company responsible for producing much of Robin Day's designs, as well as the iconic Supporto office chair created by Fred Scott. She has worked as a reporter and producer on Woman's Hour, as well as contributing regularly to Front Row, both on Radio 4. At the same time, she's also written on design and craft for the likes of the Evening Standard, Blueprint and Crafts. Not content with that, she has curated a string of exhibitions, including Silver Speaks, Idea to Object at the V&A, Blooming Jewels at Contemporary Applied Art, and her annual showcase at the Decorex Fair, entitled Future Heritage, which attempts to bring contemporary craft to a new audience. Corinne, thank you very much for doing this. Oh, thank you for asking me, Grant. But um, as you know, I'm not used to being this side of the microphone. Well, it's, it's fascinating, actually, because I was going to talk to you about that. I'm glad you brought that up, because usually I come to these things with reams and reams of kind of research that I've lifted off the internet. You leave a very light digital footprint. It's entirely intentional. Mm. Well, okay, that's interesting. Tell me about that. There's two sides to that. One is I spend an awful lot of time looking at a screen, far too much time looking at a screen, and I'd rather look at objects or talk to people. And you'll probably notice, and we'll come back to this probably, that while we're talking, um, I'll be touching stuff because tactility and that is very important to me and you can't do that on Instagram. Also, I, you know, I don't want to be swamped by other people's ideas and other people's telling me that that is good because I want to make up my own mind and not be swayed by other people. I mean, I'm not easily swayed. <laughs> I thought I'd get in there before you said that. Um, but also, there's another side of it. I actually think that ultimately the complete and utter luxury, and this was brought up by Jana Schultz in her exhibition on luxury at the v a couple of years ago. Yeah. Well, what the, is luxury? Right? Yeah, yeah, and the ultimate luxury will be that people don't have a handle on you. And I actually find that very useful. I, I have my reservations about doing this because I'm not terribly keen on being the story. Well, they're going to have a handle on you after this, I hope. I mean, can we start off with talking about your background? Yep. Uh, because obviously, you know, your family founded Hille, which... Sorry, it's Hilly. Hilly, okay. God, I've been pronouncing it wrong for 25 years. It's all right. You didn't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> your company founded Hilly, um, which has been described as one of the greatest British furniture manufacturers of the 20th century. Uh, it was founded by your great-grandfather, Salomon Hilly. Um, started initially doing high-quality repro, I think. Well, basically what happened was that my great... I come from a family of immigrants, um, which is pertinent at the moment. And uh, he, was, he came from Russia. He was very keen on beautiful objects, not that he could afford any in Russia. But when he came here, he had various jobs. Um, he sold milk. He sold wine. And in his spare time, he went to the V&A. And he went to the V&A and drew and drew and drew. And when he could afford it, he drew things that um, he managed to have one or two people making in a very small workshop in the East End. And it sort of grew from there. So that was started by my great-grandfather. My grandmother took over the business at the age of 16. Can I just ask? Yeah. I mean, when, when he was in Russia, hmm. was furniture in the 
the blood? Absolutely Where not. does that come from? Just purely from going to the v Going to the v seeing things that he thought were beautiful. And my great-grandmother, so I come from a long line of matriarchs as well as um, the odd man in it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't belittle my great-grandmother, any of my forebears actually, but my other side of the family was also um, the women did the work and led the things, uh, led, led the businesses. But um, my great-grandmother had her own silk business. Who was, oh, your great-grandmother. Yeah, oh. so at the same time as my grandfather. Right. Uh, so there was just an interest in things that were actually um, beautiful or well-made, and they were fascinated by it. Hmm. And my grandmother, who took over at 16, well, the company was, he was going to sell the company, and the people that were going to buy it wanted her to stay on. And she said, I paraphrase, I'm not working for anybody else. <laughs> and I don't think anybody else could have possibly employed her. She was totally impossible. Um, and so she ran the company herself. But she too spent a lot of time in the V&A, and indeed, um, furniture designs were made according to her designs. And there's some very, there's some early uh, 20s and 30s Art Deco furniture, which is really pretty good, and a couple of pieces in the V&A. And then my uh, parents came along uh, post-war, and my um, my my father came into the business. Because they, they met in America, I'm right in saying. No, no. No. Um, they met in the UK. Ah, uh, OK. And uh, they... Uh, my, what actually happened was that post-war, it was very different, difficult. Unless you were going to make um, very specific kinds of furniture, you couldn't get a permit to get any uh, any materials. Mm. And so during the war, in fact, my grandmother used to go around with a handcart with one of the guys from, it was a workshop, not a factory, and pick up bomb damage in order to get material to make furniture. Post-war, um, she made... She didn't think Gordon, Gordon Russell's designs were good enough. And anyway, so she refused point blank to make that furniture. And so she decided that they would export. And so my parents were sent abroad to try and sell for export. Right. So, so, they went, so is this where they found Robin or came across Robin Day? Yes. Yeah. 1948, I think I'm right. Something like that, yeah. yeah. They, went, they went to America. You've read the book. Um, <laughs> they went to America. Um, and the then licensees who were buying this very beautifully made reproduction furniture and actually just in parenthesis to that, when I've been to places like India and I've been in Maharaja's palaces and I've got down under the table and looked and seen furniture made by my grandmother, um, which is kind of you know quite mm. nice really. But there was a very high quality reproduction and they then they went to MoMA, the people who were making were buying the furniture in America had a fine art collection which had and I can remember from when I went to see them years later had a brancusi and you know to be able to touch a brancusi was the most exciting thing and they introduced my parents to contemporary art and to MoMA they went to MoMA they saw um Velo Cost furniture exhibition mm. they saw Robin Day and Clive Latimer came straight back with my father's wonderful impetuousness and um got hold of Robin and Clive Clive declined to have anything to do with them Robin said, yeah, okay. And um, they never had a contract. They didn't even have a handshake. Um, and uh, Robin and Lucian became my parents, I would say, closest friends, Yeah. as well as designers. It was a very brave thing to do, I presume, at that time. I mean, it is now, but, but back then. Yeah, it was completely insane. Um, my grandmother <laughs> was told, why was she allowing her son-in-law to ruin a perfectly good business? I think she couldn't have contained him anyway, but uh, my father and mother both thought it was the future. And my father's favourite saying, and it's one I quote quite often, it was retailers that wouldn't stock it. Public couldn't see it because yeah. no retailers would stock it. He said, yeah, well, my dog doesn't eat meat because we've never shown it any. 
and that's what he felt. And in the end, um, you know, it all culminated probably in the polypropylene chair. Um, Which is what, 63? Yeah. Yeah. And cost 63 shillings. Is that right? Yeah. Mm. Um, and it was, I mean, it was his, what he really was interested in was low cost furniture, as indeed was Robin Day. Um, they weren't always able to make that work. Um, because it was co a lot of contract furniture, yeah. because retailers wouldn't stock it. Yeah. Um, but that's where his heart was. was a so because retailers wouldn't stock it, you had to go to the commercial sector to encourage architects and designers to specify this. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, my, my mother started something called the Hilly Christmas Party, um, which was held in their showroom. And it, it used to be said, if you dropped a bomb on the Hilly Christmas Party, there wouldn't be a, a single contemporary architect left in the country. Um, which was quite a big thing to say. And in those days, I mean, now we're all used to big events and people have, you know, dues all the time, but it wasn't like that then. Well, no, I mean, I read this, that um, I'm obviously, you know, Goldfinger designed the factory in 61, but the showroom was designed by Peter Morrow, I think. Peter I'm Morrow, right. yeah. yeah. And um, there's stories of the Smithsons being there and Rainer Bannum, young Terence Conran. So so everybody was, everybody was there. Everybody was there, mm. yeah. I mean... I think it would be fair to say they had an interestingly fractious relationship with Terence, who at that point had a reputation for looking at other people's designs and reproducing them without credit. Um, you notice I very carefully said had a reputation. <laughs> and you know, there was quite a lot of aggro about that. But yes, I mean, I think pretty much they were, it was a place B, and that was very much to do, I mean, it was right next door to the ICA. I mean, literally next door to the ICA as it then was, which was in Dover Street, which is where my mother went at lunchtime. And so she met all, all the people who were formative in the ICA and people like Raina Bannam and so on were, were family friends. Mm. In fact, Raina Bannam introduced me to my, who became my brother-in-law at that time. He became a very close friend and eventually I married his younger brother. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's a, um, a quote that I read uh, Fiona McCarthy wrote about your mother, Rosamond, in The Guardian, when she dies, I know, but as a woman whose memorable elegance and sweetness coexisted with formidable determination. Um, she also described her as a supreme networker. And I'm wondering, which of those traits did you pick up? Not the charm and sweetness, <laughs> before you say it. Um, she didn't see herself as a networker. She was just genuinely interested in people and really didn't have a very... She was always enormously flattered if other people took an interest in her and didn't quite believe it. Um, but it was what was great was she was a great partnership with my father, who was me, but about 10 times larger, and was enthusiastic and positive and wanting to break barriers and argumentative. And that combined with her very genuine... He was interested in people, but he talked a lot. Um, she didn't. She listened a lot. And that was a very unusual combination. And in those days, contemporary architects and designers felt very lonely because even now we accept that everybody's interested. But then it was very much, from their point of view, us against the world. All those architects and designers stuck together because nobody was really interested and they were really having to push post-war. Polyprop was 63. Fred Scott, the brilliant... And you're sitting on one. Yeah, the brilliant Supporto chair that I'm currently sat on was 79. Uh, there's a retrospective at the V&A in 81. A 83, the company sold. Um, what happened? Um, my father was extremely ill. My father developed Parkinson's and it became impossible for him to really carry on doing what he wanted to do. Um, and my mother was looking after him. Plus also at that time, um, the office, it was office furniture market 
and that was being dominated by the big brands. And my parents had introduced both Herman Miller and Knoll to this country. They were the people that introduced them and sold them initially. Um, and it was a very competitive market, very difficult, and it needed far more money than they had behind them because they were very successful at doing new things, less successful at making it pay. I mm. mean, when the Polychair was launched in its first first form, um, which was very unusual, it was the very first um, monocoque uh, polypropylene shell of that size. At first, it was the largest piece of polypropylene molded at that time. And um, at, when it was finally molded, uh, my father had this idea that he should send it to 100 opinion formers, influencers. See, he was early on on these things. Uh, he'd have loved Instagram. And uh, he sent it and they, people came back and um, said, well, it's great, but it's a bit too small. And I can remember sitting around the dining table when I was a kid because this went on all around me all the time. And there was this huge discussion um, should what should we do, what should we do? And eventually they remortgaged the house yet again and made a second shell. And my father had the idea that perhaps people, sweeping generalisation of which he and I are both prone, to say maybe we could sell this in another market, perhaps where people have slighter physiques. So it was the, the first mould was then sent out um, to Japan. <laughs> That's brilliant. I mean, how many did they... Do, is there a figure? Has anybody ever put a figure on how many? Because I think, I think everybody, certainly from my generation downwards, sat on that chair at some point in their their lives. It seemed to be a, you, completely ubiquitous. Um, I actually don't know how many, mm. um, but it was a lot. And it was the moulds. There were several moulds and they went round the world. And at one point I had a collection of photographs of where I'd seen polychairs in stupid places like on an ox cart in the Seychelles. When my father died, Robin sent me a picture of him um, in the Okavango in a dugout canoe in a place that I had actually worked um, in a polychair in the canoe. So they went all over the place. And I have to say that it was, my father was ambivalent about it because that very early on, he was worried about environmental effects. And I used to send him letters because those were the days of letters or phone him and say, I've seen another one of those chairs, you know, and you're littering up the world. That's interesting. Because it wouldn't get designed now, presumably. Do you think, or do you think it would? Well, it, it has longevity. It does last a very long yeah. time, and it doesn't perish. That's a good thing and a bad thing, or a bad thing, we would say now, except that, you know, you see ones that were made, you know, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, I would argue that we have far too many chairs in the world. So Hilly is still there. It still trades. It still has a website. What are your feelings about the company now? I think no comment would probably be appropriate. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, we won't, we won't concentrate on that. I'm, I'm keen to know, though, did you feel, were you always going to be in the design world? Was this an inevitability? Um, I can remember being interviewed for the school I went to, and I can remember as I went out the door talking to headmistress, she said, what do you think you want to be, Corinne? And I hadn't got a clue. I was 11. I said, a journalist. So now I don't think I always wanted to go and design, but I knew design. I mean, I grew up with it. I didn't, didn't know as many other worlds. And I did, um, well, I got into the Royal College of Art straight from school, um, which was unusual. I was going to say, really? So you were, what, 18 or? Mm. Oh. Um, there were a small group of us who got in at that stage. 
actually my art teacher, who was Peggy Angus. Who oh, might... okay. Yes, yes, yes. Formidable woman. <laughs> Peggy said, you shouldn't go there, Corrie. I don't want you to go there. I did it, and it's completely the wrong thing to do. But I didn't listen to her. Well, she would never have listened to anybody either. Um, and I did go there, and um, I had a very determined view of what I thought design was about. I thought design um, was about making the world a better place, and I was interested in the effects of the built environment on human behaviour. Unfortunately, at that time, when I did interiors, it wasn't. The RCA was about being the creme de la creme and thinking you would impose your taste on other people. And um, I didn't think that's what it should be about. I thought it should work from the people up. Sounds quite kind of sweetly socialist now, but actually, I still believe a lot of those things. And I made the mistake probably of talking about it rather vociferously. So what happened? Um, so it wasn't very popular as a view. And I think also, I, I didn't know very much. And the one thing you learn, I think, as a designer, is when to stop. And uh, I think with my designs, I kept on and on because I didn't know when to stop. I didn't know. And I think it's true in making. You see it today. And there are sometimes to makers, I'd say, I thought, why aren't you stopping now? Um, because it's knowing. And I didn't know that. And I, you know, I, I fell out. I won't go into the long story, but it's a moot point as to who sacked who. Did they throw you out? Um, well, I, at the end of my first year, um, Sir Hugh Casson, who had never taught me, turned around and said, um, your work's okay, but you're a failure as a human being. Whoa, really? And I think there'd be quite a lot of people who would agree that I am. <laughs> but I was 19 and a half, and I don't think any, and I taught subsequently, and I don't think you should ever talk to a student like that. Um, he subsequently denied saying it, but it's not something you make up about yourself. Mm. Um, and he said, you can stay another term and we'll sort it from there. And I did stay another term and I went into what I would now recognise as depression. I really didn't talk to anybody much the whole term and I worked very hard. And at the end of the term, he said, well, I, I think your work suffered, but I think your personality's improved. At which point I said to him what he could do with himself because that to me was the most appalling thing that here was a young person that had been completely squashed and I'm not prepared to be squashed. Mm. Um, so I went off and read sociology and psychology at Sheffield um, and uh, then I lectured in environmental social psychology. How long did you do that for? A year right. and I had a place to do a PhD, uh, the only place where you could do it, um, which was Guildford and then Strathclyde and I looked at myself in the mirror and thought, really, you're going to be an academic? There's no way you're suited to be an academic. No. You're far too mercurial and you like knowing. Journalism is probably a better thing, but I hadn't thought of it at that point. So I, um, I hitched around Africa. Okay. So I'm intrigued with the Royal College situation and the Hugh Casson thing. I mean, what did your family, what did your parents make of this? I don't think it was up to them to make anything. They were distressed at my distress, but they didn't do anything, nor would indeed I like that. I mean, it wasn't very easy for me at the Royal College because people clearly knew who I was. And I don't talk, as you know, I don't talk about it these days. And this is, I'm not sure I should be talking about it now, but um, you know, I'm very, very proud of what my parents achieved. Um, um, well, I'm proud of what the family achieved because I think they really introduced contemporary furniture to this country at more accessible price points. And I think it's something that's really not recognized now. Um, and I think that's a shame. However, um, obviously there wasn't anything to do with them. It was my problem, not their problem. And mm. they were clearly distressed. 
Um, but they, you know, they weren't about to interfere and I would never have wanted them to interfere. So it must have been very sweet when you got made an honorary fellow in 2008, right? Yeah, you got made <laughs> one in 2009. Oh, she said chalking that up. Um, yeah, uh, it, it was actually Christopher Frayling did offer it to me and I did sort of say to him, what took you so long? And his response was pretty much, well, could it be your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, nothing has really changed. And yes, it was because, in fact, my mother, she did rather better than me. She was made... Um, about 10 years before that, was made a, a, a senior honorary fellow. So she did better than me, as indeed she did, because she made a greater contribution. Fair enough. So you're, I, I digress, because you're travelling around Africa, and South America, I think, as well. Uh, I hitched around Africa. I taught in northern Nigeria in an area you can no longer go to, sadly, because uh, of Boko Haram. I uh, ran a photographic safari camp in the Okavango, for some, for some months. Great, I loved that. Um, and it really was a wild place. I came back. Um, I then went with my now husband and built houses in the south of France. And I was desperate to go to South America because I'd always wanted to go to South America. When you say built houses, were you physically... Yeah. What kind of houses were you building? Uh, the first one we built what was a, uh, on an orange, old orange terrace. And my brother-in-law, who's an architect... Um, designed it mostly out of uh, components, existing building components, as you know, it was a kind of, he was a, he started a magazine called Clip Kit, Peter Murray, it's where Peter Murray started his publishing. Uh, Peter Murray, he founded Blueprint uh, and, yeah. Exactly, so, um, and we then built the house that came out on a lorry, part of it did, and then we built another one down below at the bottom, um, and, you know, we built them with our own hands. I have to say, I did rather less of the building than Andrew did. I did the supporting. Mm. Um, and then we went, and I said, well, we've done your bit. I'm going to go to South America. So we did. So we went around South America. Okay. Uh, Travelling, working? Um, Travelling and working. Um, we did some work. We went, uh, subsequently went round one way, um, hitching round. Andrew wasn't too good at hitching. Um, he's quite tall and uh, he found it quite hard. Um, I, I loved it because I'd done it already um, in Africa and found it absolutely fantastic because I really like traveling. I really like meeting people in unexpected situations. And, um, but uh, we then did some work and we went and visited some of the hilly licensees, so there were a lot in South America. And um, so we did both. There's never a question of you joining the, the family firm? Absolutely none. Why not? Because there were too many of them in there already. And um, I wasn't interested in that. I mm. was interested in my own in my own thing, and the, the design I was interested in was effectively, as I say, trying to make life better for people, which is fairly paternalistic in its own sense. And I still have that problem with a lot of contemporary design, that I find a lot of contemporary design, and indeed some craft, is so incredibly egotistical. It's about declaring the hand of the designer and the maker. And actually, I'm not sure that objects on the whole um, should intrude. They should make life better for human beings to interact. So when did the journalism, when uh, did that become a, an option in that case? Oh, the journalism came out of the fact that um, we'd been in South America. I was really, um, I'd always had a keen interest in what was happening in the then, what would then call the third world and trying to see how you can make it better. And what became entirely clear to me was that as a designer, an interior designer, there was no way I was going to make it better. I'd only make it worse. Um, 
And I rather thought that, you know, I was probably a third-rate interior designer. I could have been a second-rate architect, but I was a third-rate interior designer. And um, I then thought, well, actually, what did I see? And what I saw was how expatriates were really screwing up um, things for their companies and countries and, and interracial um, conversations because there was an awful lot of culture shock and people going in and not understanding what they were doing and behaving in a very aggressive colonialistic way. Um, so I started with a certain amount of cheek um, giving lectures and I worked for the Industrial Society at the time and I ran, started running a series of classes with Farnham Castle on how to conduct your business um, abroad and we ran courses on working in the Middle East, um, working in different places in Africa um, and I did a lot of elements on culture shock. So I did a great deal on culture shock and uh, also the kind of uh, human resources side of things. And with a group of other people in the expatriate world who were all involved in finance and taxation advice, um, we started a small magazine called The Expatriate. And my very first article that I ever wrote, which was, um, it was repeated as 15 column inches in the FT as a quote from me, just had inverted commas around it from front to back. And I was furious. And I wrote to the then editor, uh, Louis Heron, and said, how dare your journalist take an, an article I have written and just put quotation marks around it? And he said, my journalists don't do that. The journalist, however, who shall remain nameless, wrote to me and said, I'm really sorry if there's anything I can ever do for you. Second article I wrote for The Expatriate um, went down to uh, 12 column inches in The Times with much the same format. I thought, I'm not having this. Uh, I'm obviously must be a better journalist than I thought. And um, I didn't think of myself as a journalist. And indeed, it took me a long time to think I was one. I then, um, I wrote to him and the editor, the page editor, and said, look, if you want me to write for you, why don't you just ask me? So he did. What kind of things were you writing about? Management. Right, so not design. No, nope. I did write about design mm. on occasion. I think I wrote about design management. No, I wrote about the careers in management, um, which I was uniquely unqualified to do. <laughs> but as you know, that's never stopped me doing anything. So when did the broadcast happen? Well, I wanted, I really loved radio. I've always loved radio. Um, it's my first love, I think. And um, I decided to do a series of articles on how to get your jobs and how to get a job in journalism, one on print, one on radio, one on television, the one I was interested in radio. So I made appointments to see people who I thought might ultimately give me a job, interviewed them, and every single one of them offered me the opportunity to work for them. So I did. And this was doing general news stuff or well, yeah, Woman's Hour? And, and it was Woman's Hour. When, when Woman's Hour. No, right, right at the beginning. I right. went, I went okay. to see the then deputy editor of Woman's Hour who... Um, I think I went in with 11 ideas of what, when I went to see her afterwards, and I think she accepted three of them. I'd never made a radio programme in my life, and I thought that three out of 11 was a pretty bad score, uh, actually. <laughs> but apparently, <laughs> years later discussing it, she said it was the most she'd ever commissioned from anybody, especially anybody who'd never actually held a microphone before. So I'm intrigued, what were those three ideas? Can you remember? I can't remember now. Mm. Mm. Well, uh, the difference then between broadcast journalism and print journalism? Um, broadcast journalism, the, the kind of things I did, I made generally I made features, and the features I made um, contained music, um, readings. I tended to make features, say, for example, on the cabbage, um, and I would bring in how the cabbage featured in art, but I would also bring in its medical applications, 
if there were any, um, how you cooked it, all kinds of things. And I made a package. And my generally my features at that time were about 12 and a half minutes long, or anything between 10 and 13 and a half. I did make one on suicide, I think, that was 15 and a half minutes, um, which is a long time mm. on radio. Mm. That was something that you didn't really have in those days the possibility of doing in journalism. You couldn't, you couldn't craft something that was so complicated and um, interlayered. And I mean, to me, I think it's very interesting. And I did notice that I just used the word craft, and it was a very three-dimensional thing for me. That's what I loved about radio. And I did learn, however much I was cross with the RCA, I learned a lot there about how to think in three dimensions. And I would make a radio program and indeed, to some extent, still do a three-dimensional drawing, at least in my head, of any article I ever write, because I try to see how you interweave it and how you construct it as a physical object. So sound to me is physical. Interesting. I mean, we've talked, uh, you introduced the C word. Mm -hmm. We've talked about your background in design. We've talked about how you got into journalism. Um, the interesting craft, when did that begin to emerge? I suspect the interesting craft itself. I mean, obviously making, I hung around, you know, as a kid, um, there wasn't anywhere to leave me because both my parents worked. So I was in a factory or I was in a showroom. Um, in the factory, you know, I was playing with wood shavings on the floor. I kind of often joke that I've got um, sawdust in my veins. But, you know, some of my earliest memories, about three and a half, four, going with my grandmother, to um, buy hardwood, you wouldn't ever do that now, but to buy hardwood at the docks. And I can remember jumping up and down on these socking great whole tree trunks of uh, mahogany and rosewood. And you can't say that now, but actually, you know, this was some time ago. And just jumping up and down on those boards and having a great time. Now I think, why wasn't I listening to what she knew about wood? She really knew her stuff. And with the other grandmother uh, who had, been, had her tailoring business that collapsed, um, she then made her living selling, in a very small way, um, silver. So I went with her at the age of about five to the silver vaults. So objects were always there. I was always taught to look, to feel things, to, to observe. And so it's always there. I think actually contemporary craft, my father was very keen on buying my mother interesting contemporary jewellery, which was just like, you, people didn't wear that then. Goodness me. Um, it's bad enough now, but Christ, you didn't do it then. So that's probably where it started. And then I bought stuff for myself. And when I say I bought stuff, I mean it was plastic or wood or whatever. Um, so what age were you when you first started buying jewellery for yourself? 11. I've saved up my pocket money because mm. um, I thought it was amazing. I thought, you know, you were carrying around a piece of art on yourself. And did your parents comment on your purchases? I mean, presumably it was a, a household full of Easter's. I mean, you know, but it was considered normal that you would be interested in stuff. Mm. Although I never, you know, I, I don't have a huge collection. People think I have a huge collection. I actually don't. Um, but there are things, you know, I've always been interested. And I think when, when I was on Woman's, I mean, I had to differentiate. I, for a long time, I didn't touch design because, you know, people just assumed. And I think it's the longest I've ever talked about my design background because, for a long time, it was very clear that people only thought that I'd got where I was because of my parents. Now nobody knows the name Julius. Very rarely someone might know the name Julius, but I mean, they don't, and they don't know Hilly at all. Um, 
probably you're probably the last generation that does. And yeah, I think well, I'm nodding uh, uh, because I think probably I am, and and it's an interesting thing because what I discovered looking things up. I mean, there are books, but but on the internet, there's very very little actually. It, it's quite odd that history seems to be written certainly in design terms from the mid 2000s onwards really but because just... people don't know mm. and they also know what people tell them so i mean i you know for example paula day's taken over um looking after her parents reputation which is all very well and good but kind of hilly's been quite wiped out of that now i'm old enough to remember playing tennis with the days pretty much every other weekend either down near their home or up near ours and the you know the fact that Robin developed his designs and he was allowed to do what the hell he wanted, often, I think, to the detriment of the company in terms of economic terms. Um, but it, it, there was, if you don't have a manufacturer, and the problem is in Britain today, there are one or two notable exceptions, but there are very few people manufacturing furniture here. And if you think of it at the time, Hilly manufactured contemporary furniture. They sold it here and they sold it all over the world. And it was really important. Um, but for me as a person, you don't really want to be held up that you just got somewhere because of your parents so I think in a way partly the attachment of craft was initially because it was something I understood and a design and I really enjoyed it and I've always enjoyed making um, and it was distinct it was designed but I started doing things for Women's Hour and the very first person as I say the deputy editor who commissioned me in the first place was kind of oh you can't really do design or craft on the radio and I said well listen and let's see and I did and they were in fact extremely I mean I made a piece I don't know 100 years ago about Simone Ten Hompel or Jane Adam um, I think one of my best programs was about paper mache um, with Julie Arkell and that the then deputy editor which she had become editor by then was on holiday and came back and found that this this feature you know 10 and a half 10 minutes 45 on paper mache and went ballistic and said I am not having a program on paper mache <laughs> in woman's art and I said Sally you always taught me to listen before making a judgment and she listened to it and it went on air and when she retired at her retirement speech from woman's art she went on elsewhere she said and one of the things I've learned is you never can you have to be very careful how you judge things just think of paper mache so craft um, I'm very proud to say that probably I introduced craft to Woman's Hour. Um, I was subsequently a judge, as indeed were you, um, on the Woman's Hour Craft this Prize. This is true. This is true. I mean, you tell a lovely anecdote about having Alison Britton uh, on the show, I seem to recall. Yes. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this out loud, but um, Alison, who I knew extremely well, having got a piece of ceramic in the same wall at school as Alison, my claim to craft fame, um, Ali, I, she got her OBE. And I was producing Woman's Hour at that point because I was both a reporter and a producer. And um, I thought she should be on the show. And I put her at the top of the show. And Jenny Murray said to me before the show, oh, Corinne Julius, why are we having one of your craft people on the show? They can't string two words together. And um, I thought, hmm, little do you know, Alison's terrifying. Um, in that <laughs> sense, you know, she was terrifying at school. Never mind now. Um, anyway, so I said, never mind, Jenny. She'll bring one or two pots with her, and I'm sure you'll find something to talk about. As a producer, you actually write all the questions out in advance um, so that a presenter, and you brief them. It's quite 
you know, coaches. I need to get one of those. You do, mm. you do. Um, <laughs> anyway, so actually, no, the research is often much more interesting than interviewing a person. Anyhow, um, she, we did this, and, and so Jenny, I think Jenny was there looking very grumpy about it. Alison was on first in the programme. I think it was seven minutes, 25 seconds. And I think I'd written seven questions to be asked over that period. There was one pot on the table. Um, Jenny got out two questions in that time. And um, at the end of the programme, we have a post-mortem, and she said to me, Corinne Julius, don't you ever have one of those people on again? They never stop talking. <laughs> and I have to say that that's what really appeals to me about craft. I mean, I'm chair of Critic Circle Visual Arts and Architecture section. I write across fine art, and as you said in your introduction, fine art, craft, design, architecture, and actually landscape. And the thing that I love about craft is that, A, the people, another, I told you I don't do sweeping generalizations, at least not as much as my father, but quite a lot. Um, and that is that people in the craft world on the whole are pretty fantastic people, that they have this ability, they have a combination of head, heart and hand, they have intellectual rigor, there's a wonderful narrative to whatever they do, and boy do they push techniques. And to me that's so fascinating. And Another sweeping generalisation in fine art, that is much less the case. There are people who do conceptual art and who glory in the fact, although it's dying down a bit now, that they never touch things themselves. They have an army of people doing it for them. I have to say over the last seven years, there's been a big shift. There is a, there is a move to oh, reskilling, yes. I think yes, the, uh, the I phrase mean, people are using. Yeah, about seven or eight years ago, there were a lot of people using ceramics, you know, unbelievably badly and sort of glorying in that and saying how clever they were to do it badly. Um, and I kept thinking, where are the people who, you know, we freeze, where are the people who are really good, who absolutely, you know, and I look at an awful lot of craft makers and their work, and this is actually motivates me hugely, they are incredibly interesting people. Their work is amazing and it's consistently undervalued. And it's undervalued by the fine art world. And, to some extent, even by the craft world. And that, to me, is a real major, major motivator for me in what I do now. So, okay, so that's the relationship between craft and fine art, which is thorny. Um, it's not really thorny. It's a continuum. Where's the problem? Yeah. The problem is how people value it and how much they pay to put a piece of fine art, which they probably actually don't like very much, on their walls or stick it in a vault somewhere, and how much they'll pay for something that is incredibly beautiful that you can touch. And sometimes you can use in a non... Use not just because it's beautiful, but because it has a function. Yeah. Craft also has... I mean, it is part of a continuum, as you say, between fine art, technology, and design, science. It pops mm. up across across all kinds of boundaries. Um, but has a relationship between craft and design changed in the time that you've been writing about it? Yeah. I mean, because you're, you're doing this uh, Future Heritage, which is in Decorex, which is a design, albeit a certain type of design fair. And presumably you're doing that uh, to encourage a different group of people to look at that kind of work. So I'm wondering... Um, the relationship between design and craft, where that sits? Well, as I said, you know, I'm actually quite torn because I actually think design per se ought to be about making pe people's lives better yeah. and providing the background or a framework for human beings to operate in more happily, more joyously, whatever it is. Craft, I think, has a slightly different role than I think it can actually, I think it can make things be, be joyous and it can be 
provocative. Um, that, I mean, the line between, you know, maker, I don't generally use the word craft in one sense. I use the word making and maker. And I had lots of arguments with the Craft Council about 15 to 10 years ago that they never used making. They used craft. And I kept saying, you're missing out on all these people, particularly in the design products department and at the RCA and places like that, where there were people who, who were supposedly designers, inverted commas, but the whole purpose of what they did, they thought through making. And that thinking through making has been such an important thing. And, it's, and it still is. I mean, there are you know, seminal people who've really pushed thinking. And they've done it through the use of materials and the way that they handle things. I was going to ask you about that, because obviously, it seems to me, Future Heritage, you used a generation of designers, makers, artists, whatever you want to call them, that came out of design products, which was a very particular moment in time, it seems to me. Ron Arad was mainly, Ron Arad and Torn Bunch, who were mainly running the department. Jürgen Bay was very, very important, I would posit, as was people like Martino Gamper. Um, it seems to me that that generation that you use for Future Heritage maybe aren't coming out of that college anymore. Um, I mean, is there anywhere in the British education system that's producing these people who are kind of hybrid, if you like? I mean, you could say that that moment has passed. I don't actually think it is. Mm. I think one of the things that always interests me is that someone like Mark Madonovich will say, material scientists, I'm getting to the answer to your question, material scientists invent materials, but it's makers who tell us what those materials can do because they explore and push them. That to me has always been, you know, I heard that at a conference, I don't know, 15 years ago, and that I thought, yeah, I really get that. I think... There are very few places that take that approach now, and I think the RCA actually, and I'm always telling them this, should actually look back at that because what they've done is produce a design products department, which is a second-rate industrial design engineering. Why bother? IDE is fine. What you need is somewhere where people take the other end of that continuum. Um, I would say Materials Futures at CSM. Right. Uh, is a place I look. There's some stuff comes out of Kingston, a bit in Northumbria. I mean, it's much more. I mean, it's very for me. It's very difficult to go and find people. In well, I was going sense. to ask you whether it's now harder. Yeah. Although, if you look at Future Heritage this year, there were a number of. I thought there were going to be fewer people from the RCA, but actually there were quite a, a reasonable number. But there were people from other backgrounds, and I do. I do mix people that would routinely be called more traditional in the craft field and aren't design products people. So there were ceramicists and um, silversmiths and jewellers who, woodworkers, who've got no RCA training at all and don't come out as design products. It probably makes it more difficult, um, but that's the bit I like. So when did the curation emerge? I mean, journalism has been going through uh, existential crisis since the internet. Um, was it a deliberate, conscious effort to, to change track? No, not really. And I think it's very much the same thing. I mean, I've always been very lucky because I've written across such a, and broadcast across such a big spectrum. I've been, um, you know, I, I at one point was, I've, I've won awards for food journalism, um, garden journalism. So I've never, I mean, although I now do craft and design, I'm still actually known a bit in those other worlds but they're very separate. They shouldn't be, but they are. And so I've always been very lucky and I haven't had a problem getting work, um, you know, because it swings in roundabouts. 
But um, the story happened, I was in Milan at a dinner, there were five of us at the dinner, the lady next to me was Simone Dubois, then the, um, the sort of uh, design director of Decorex. And it was very late on a Wednesday in Milan, it was about 11.30, we hadn't actually eaten. And she made the mistake of asking me what I thought of Decorex. And um, I'm not the most discreet at the best of times. And um, I said, well, do you want the polite or do you want the truthful answer? And um, she used a Kiwi and she said, well, I'll have the truthful. There then followed a 15-minute diatribe of me saying, well, it's all very well. Yes, you, I come and I don't, try not to come every year because, frankly, I don't like the stuff. It's beautifully made, beautifully made reproductions of the 18th century without any fundamental understanding of what the 18th century about, which was, you know, new developments in manufacture processes, materials, techniques, you know, even marketing and you're not doing any of that. There are other shows around, you have to have a point of difference. You've been around 36 years, but what's your point of difference, or 35 years, what's your point of difference? You should be showing people the best of contemporary craft, and there are all these people out there who are really undervalued, and your very wealthy patrons should be using them. And after a few minutes, 15 minutes, I thought, okay, I'll shut up now. And I did, and we talked about other things, and I didn't see her for nine months. And then actually she came for breakfast, and she was sitting right here, and I said to her, so you didn't like my idea, arms akimbo. And she kind of looked at me and said, yeah, yeah, I did. And I said, well, even arms even more akimbo. Well, what are you going to do about it? She said, no, what are you going to do about it? I'm giving you a space 16 and a half meters by 11 and a half meters. Get on with that. To which my reaction was, oh, shit. And um, my mouth always gets me into trouble. I open it and stuff comes out. But I do find it's quite useful because if you say things out loud, then you have to make them happen. And I've learned an enormous amount. And actually, it's a very similar skill to being a journalist. I mean, basically, it's knowing where to look, knowing or knowing who to ask about who you should look for. Um, and it's great because it's brought together, you know, I mean, I've used people who I've known for 25 years, as well as people who are very new. And it's a very similar skill. And fortunately, um, it's been pretty successful. So there has been this renewed interest in craft, in making, um, I mean, is it anything more than a passing fad, do you think? Well, there's an element of that, obviously, mm. and Instagram's been important about that. But I also think, uh, it's what I said earlier on about tactility, is that we spend our time um, rolling around our hands on a mouse and we look at a screen and we don't touch much. We're hardwired for touch. We're also hardwired for smell, but actually that's even perhaps even a less appreciated sense. We hear a lot these days, um, and we do smell a fair amount, we're always being told to look at things and there's all this stuff on a screen but touching is really really important i think craft has become important partly because we don't touch much anymore but craft objects often invite something that you should hold it or you should you should touch it in some way and you're allowed to with craft generally with fine art you're not allowed to touch it but craft you generally are also i think there's something, I mean, I think Marx had it, the right answer, but actually for the wrong reasons. And that is people have become so removed from the means of production. They don't, when I was a kid, and it wasn't just me, I mean, people knew what their parents did. Um, you know, the guy next door, that his mum and dad ran a sweet shop and he used to go in and, well, I did too, I played with the sweets and we saw how certain things were made and put together. You saw things, and for me, this is still so exciting. It's alchemy for the 21st century. There's all these raw materials, and it goes through the head, the brain, and the heart, and the hands of a maker, 
and comes out as something that you didn't even think you could make. And it comes out the other end. That's alchemy, that's magic. Um, and I think that that's what craft has, and I think that that won't die. I do think there's some parts of craft that will die because it's become a thing. Um, but it also depends how makers, and indeed the craft council, and people that speak on behalf of craft, how they deal with that issue. So our time is nearly up, Corinne. Uh, it's the kind of tedious last question. Plans for the future, what can we expect from you? Oh, I'm afraid you can expect more. <laughs> <laughs> there'll, be more there'll be more shows, not just Future Heritage. There are several things bubbling away. Um, I won't say what they are because that will jinx them. Um, obviously, there's more writing and broadcasting. And um, yeah, there's one particular thing which is a very interesting space. I'll leave it hanging there. Oh, well, I'm intrigued. We'll have to leave it. That's really annoying. We'll wait and see. Corinne Julius, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks once again to Corinne. And do remember, there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from and go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.